0: I'm Carrie
1: and I'm Amy and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover.
0: This is a show where two different friends, Amy's like a golden retriever and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life.
1: Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author awesome, a bookseller bingo, a member of a book club marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are.
0: Readers have heard of the big five publishing companies and include HarperCollins and Penguin Random House. But there is something really special about university presses. Unfortunately, they don't often get the attention they deserve. Sarah Monroe, marketing manager and acquisitions editor at West Virginia University Press, is our guest this week. And she talks to us about what makes a university press special and how they operate differently from the big five.
1: One of the unique things about them is that they can and do feature more diverse voices and topics than what major publishers are willing to put out there. Former guest Nima Avashia, author of Another Appalachia, was published by WVU Press, and she is just one of the diverse voices that readers can find at smaller publishers. WVU Press has made some pretty important headlines lately after their author Disha Filia's book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies became a
0: finalist for the National Book Award in 2020. While we definitely book nerd out with Sarah, we hope you stay tuned to what was supposed to be her three in the third degree, where we ask only one question but learned a ton about her abiding love for dinosaurs and how they were part of her wedding ceremony with her husband.
1: You cannot miss it, but first... But first, we want to tell all of our our listeners, if you are in the Louisville area tonight, Wednesday, June 1st, Carrie, you and I are going to be at Carmichael's Bookstore, and we're going to be in conversation with author Lisa Cross-Smith about her brand new release, Half Blown Rose. Very exciting. It's our first live conversation with an author in front of an audience. So if you're in the area, come join us. We'd love to meet you.
0: And hopefully my mouth won't. Um,
1: well, I've already told you a couple things
0: that I I'm banning know. you from saying. I know there are a couple mm-hmm. things I cannot say, so
1: mm-hmm. I know yeah.
0: I have been warned. I, I will be on my <laughs> best behavior. So, Carrie, you have a brand new high school graduate. I do. I do. It was a very busy Thursday. My middle child got promoted to high school, so I have a rising ninth grader, and I have a you know a rising college freshman. But you know, I, I don't get sentimental about really much of anything. And uh, my husband and I had a, a conversation about that because, you know, you just see lots of people who get sad about it and kind of sentimental. And I, I maybe I just don't have a heart. I don't know. I just don't get sad about it. And Uh, Maybe it's from reading a lot of books about Buddhism or something (laughs) that I'm like, you know what? Everything is impermanent. So it it seems like a waste of energy to like get bogged down in. That's what I'm going with anyway.
1: So my daughter graduated and she was my youngest. She was the baby. She graduated from high school last year. And I don't think I shed any tears either, really. I, you know, I guess my philosophy is the whole point of having kids is you want to raise them to be functioning adults. Right. And I mean, there have been times where I have shed tears. I, I did shed tears when I dropped my oldest off at college. Mm-hmm. but it's it's part of life's trajectory, and it's a good thing. you wouldn't you wouldn't want your child to be dependent on you forever. Right. But I think for a lot of people, it just means that it's a new part of life. It's a transition and transitions can be can be hard. Yeah. But I must say this transitions, see, I use that word again, into our, the other thing that I want to talk about, which is that once all of your children have graduated high school and have left, then you are an empty nester and you can do all kinds of fun things. I went to Italy with my husband because we were empty nesters and we went by ourselves. We went for eight nights, I think, and it was fabulous.
0: Not having to ask anybody else's uh, opinion about what the two of you all want to do. You know, you just have two people to make a decision, not, you know, four people or five people or however many children you have. I would imagine it feels certainly much less complicated, which I don't really remember what that was like, you know, when when it was just the two of us.
1: Although two out of the three of my children were (laughs) a little disgruntled that they didn't get invited to go and we're like well no
0: (laughs) this this isn't a family trip sorry (laughs) too bad now I will say and we we haven't done it yet but one of the things that I think will be a harder transition for me is doing a family trip without our daughter like when it comes to that point Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. you know she can't go or doesn't want to go and then it's just you know, my husband and our boys, I think that that'll probably make me a little bit like, oh, this feels different. But maybe it's because I don't put a whole lot of stock in like milestone ceremonies. You know, graduation, I was like, okay, let's get this done. I'm not into pomp and circumstance, but I'm really into like family vacations. And so maybe, you know, at that point, I'll have kind of that sentimental, like, oh, it feels different and I don't like it. But uh, you know, we're not at that point yet. She is all in like, you're paying for vacation. I'm still going, you know, so we'll see yep. if that ever changes. Yeah. So, t- so tell me if you had to pick the best thing from your Italy trip, what, what would you say it was?
1: Uh, for me personally, I would say we took a cooking class with an Italian chef in Rome and my husband and I, and then there were two ladies from Australia. And the chef took us to the local farmer's market to buy the produce. Uh, And then she took us to a cheese shop where she got the cheese that she was going to use. And then we went back to this private kitchen in a restaurant and we all made the meal together. So I learned how to make homemade pasta. Ooh. and that was really fun and it was a delicious meal and it was really fun chatting with these two australian cousins they're just really upbeat and they're high energy and they're just they just seem to be great people so i really enjoyed them a lot but i would say that was my favorite i think probably for my husband you know he's really into ancient history and roman history and things and so he enjoyed the uh going to see the coliseum and mm-hmm. and all that stuff too But my favorite thing about Italy really was, I think, the sidewalk cafes. Mm. I mean, there were just a ton of them. And you can just stop and get a little snack or get a drink. Or I learned to love cappuccino. I am a huge Diet Coke drinker. And when I went to Italy, they did not have Diet Coke. They had uh, Coke Zero, which I don't care for. Mm -hmm. And so I had to find some kind of alternative to get my caffeine. And so... They offer you cappuccino everywhere. Everywhere can give you a cappuccino. They had cappuccinos in bars. I mean, everywhere can give you a cappuccino. And so, instead of diet coke, I ended up drinking like two cappuccinos a day. And I'm thinking about ordering myself a cappuccino maker.
0: Oh, uh, okay. but cappuccinos are delicious. And well, it, it helps when they're when you're having them in Italy, but at,
1: at a sidewalk cafe. Yeah, you they're know, they're amazing. Yeah. And Pasta really does taste different in Italy. I mean, I know I'd always heard that, but I'm like, how different can it taste? But I think most of it is all homemade pasta. And when you make homemade pasta, it does taste different than when you're making it from a box. You My know, husband, from box dried pasta. Oh,
0: well, sure, sure. My husband and I, when we went to Venice, we had we had hot chocolate at a cafe near, near St. Mark's Square. And it was the absolute most delicious hot chocolate. The thickest, creamiest, most delicious hot chocolate. We, we still talk about it. And it's been, we went in 2001. It was the summer before 9-11. And, and we still talk about that hot chocolate. In that, that is so funny because my husband doesn't
1: really like coffee. But a couple times when we would stop places so I could get a cappuccino, they would have hot chocolate on the menu and he would order hot chocolate. Mm. Every single time they told him, no, we don't really have hot chocolate. Hot chocolate this time of year, so he kept trying and he never could
0: get a hot chocolate. Really, I'll
1: have to tell him that they are delicious and he missed out on it. Yeah, yeah. Just well,
0: it's it just—it's funny them. and it was July. I mean, like we had it in July, which is not you know not a great time to have hot chocolate, but we had it and like I saved I saved one of the sugar packets from this particular cafe because it was so good. So
1: you know, one of the books that I have read recently that was not set in Italy, but was a travel writing book was by Suzanne Roberts, who was a guest on our show last summer. And she wrote a book called Bad Tourist. And that one was published by a a university press. It was published by the University of Nebraska. And that was one of the first books that made me realize that university presses are not just for publishing academic books. Since our episode with her, And knowing that she was published by a university press, I have been more intrigued by what university presses put out. Because before then, I kind of wrote them off as that they weren't publishing things that I would want to read. Mm -hmm. And that is not the case. So I think we need to talk to Sarah and find out more about how university presses work. Okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) Sarah Monroe, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having
2: me. This is my first podcast. I, of course, nervous, but I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be nervous; it will be fun. We promise.
1: <laughs> you sound so, like
2: very fun people.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, university Press's weren't even on my radar till probably a couple years ago. And I read a couple of books that have been some of my favorite and all of them have been from university presses. And I don't even think that I even really knew that fiction and creative nonfiction could be published by university presses. So I'm excited to talk to you with West Virginia University Press all about university presses. But first, tell us just a little bit about yourself. How did you come to work
2: at WVU Press? It was a meandering path. You know, some of us take the longer routes to get places. It took me a while to get through college, and I changed my major a bunch of times. I eventually graduated with a degree in political science because it got me out the fastest, but I knew (laughs) that I wanted, you know, what you want to spend money for. (laughs) Hey, I can
0: totally appreciate that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But I knew I wanted to work with words. While I was an undergrad, I did a six-month co-op with a university press journal and I was an editorial assistant there. So I kind of got my feet wet in publishing there. And I did a little work at a newspaper in town and then some copywriting for a university. And then I wanted to get into an MFA program. So I applied for grad schools all over the place, but places with full funding. Um, And WVU was one of those places. And I applied mostly because I saw besides the funding, they have a PRT, which is personal rapid transport. It's like a little pod that goes on a loop around town and you call it to you and it comes to pick you up at whatever stop you are and takes you to another stop. And there's no driver. It's space age technology. They have to shut it down every summer so they can like make sure it's working for the next school year or whatever. But it's just like this Little delightful thing, and because you know, I wanted to be an astronaut at some point in my life, it's like space <laughs> technology, <laughs> let's do that. That's a good reason to move five hours away yes. and go to grad school. <laughs> uh, so, I did that, and I got an MFA in uh, creative writing, and poetry was my specialty. But part of the program, it's a three year program, it's really wonderful, and they want to set you up with skills you can use in life afterwards, because not everyone can get a job in creative writing or make careers as writers. So I worked for two years at the university press. That was kind of my first big introduction to university presses. I loved it. The press is super small, only five people. So I got to work with everyone in, in different ways, working on the acquisition side and production and copy editing. So it was a great experience. And I really wanted to stay after I graduated, but there wasn't a job at the time. So then three years later, when a job did open up, I had been working at a nonprofit and then at Temple University Press. The job at West Virginia opened up again. So I went back because I love West Virginia, it turns out.
1: So tell us a little bit about West Virginia University Press. How
2: did it begin? The West Virginia University Press is the only university press and the largest publisher of any kind in the state of West Virginia, and we are part of the university. Um, We publish books and scholarly journals by authors around the world. We have um, particular emphases in Appalachian studies, history, higher education, the social sciences, and interdisciplinary books on energy, environment, and resources. But we also publish works of fiction and creative nonfiction, which is where most readers are probably more likely to encounter us. The disciplines that we focus on are in alignment with the strengths of the university, and we hope also to draw attention to the school's MFA program. And a couple of our recent fiction books are by MFA alum, and all these books still have to pass the same kind of peer review, and that's one thing that's part of a university press is the peer review process, which is different from the big publishers. And overarching all of this is a focus on social justice and um, how we can kind of promote that through the works we're publishing both creative and scholarly work. And we're hoping to build bridges between scholars, authors, artists and activists. So some of our books are crossover titles or things that are in between that can appeal to both academic and trade markets. The way that the press started, it emerged from the English department about 20 years ago, I think. And it's had only two directors who came from publishing backgrounds. And our current director, Derek Kristoff, started here in 2014, and he's really overhauled and revamped the press. Um, our three most successful books ever were published since 2019. So this like oh, the wow. last few years have
0: been really phenomenal for us. You know, most readers, I think, you know, when, when they think about publishing, they think about, you know, big publishers, they think about Harper Collins, or they think about Penguin. And so talk to us about some of the differences and similarities between a a university press and a, you know, a big publisher, talk to us a little bit about what some of those are. Well, the big thing is money. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, yeah. Yep,
2: (laughs) we have a lot less money. But part of the university press is the peer review process. And if anyone's familiar with journal publishing or that type of thing, even the journals that you read or the scientific studies, they have to go through peer review. So someone who's another expert in the field will look at the work and read it carefully and make sure there's nothing that's wrong or if there are things that can be improved things like that. And that's how we use peer review. So everything that we publish goes to two readers who are kind of experts in their field. So if it's a a more scholarly title, you know, that's going to be someone who's you know working in geography or um, Appalachian studies or whatever the related field is. And for our trade titles, it's going to be a published author who's probably published on similar themes or something like that, who we think can, look at the manuscript and say, yeah, this is good or eh, it still needs work or here's some ways that it can improve. Here's what it's doing well. Maybe think about this in revisions. And hopefully they'll also say, yeah, I want to blurb it when it comes out.
1: Now, That's are those I- authors that will have been published by West Virginia University Press or the people that you have looking at them could be any author?
2: Yeah. Do you know both. what I'm saying? We use the people who are kind of in our previously published authors, um, and then we also try to bring in other people too, especially if it's a trade title for a larger market, if we could have someone outside the area who's published a book kind of like that, then that's good for us later if they're able to blurb for us, and we can use that for publicity and things like that.
0: So expanding our network is a good... You know, on the perks, we've talked to... You know, lots of different writers, but we've also talked to like book agents. So, one of my questions is in terms of, you know, if somebody has a book, do they contact you? Does their agent contact you? Does that process, in terms of somebody who gets it published through West Virginia University Press, is that process in any way similar? I, I know that one of your titles is Acquisitions Editor. So, I assume Acquisitions is acquiring book titles. So, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, you're
2: right. When I say acquisitions editor, everyone always kind of looks at me strangely, but you you got it. That means I acquire books that we then publish. And I have not worked at a big trade house, but I assume it works similarly, at least at the beginning of the process where an agent or an author approaches us with a project. Sometimes it's a proposal, sometimes it's a full manuscript and they send us an overview and a couple chapters or the full thing and I'll read parts of it and see if we like it and then I think after that the process might differ quite a bit because we're so small we kind of think of ourselves as a boutique press there's only five of us and we publish around 20 books a year so each book is really important to us and everyone at the press works on each book and it's important too that we like what we're working on so we spend a lot of time each of us working on each of these books and so I think whereas in a big house it might just be like they have this process everything kind of goes through and gets churned out it maybe it's like coffee uh you could go to a a big coffee shop and you know what you're going to get every time and they're going to keep churning out the coffee or you go to a little mom and pop coffee shop where It's like a pour over and it takes a few extra minutes where they give you a little design on the (laughs) foam on the top. Like you kind of get this more individualized experience rather than just a like name written on a cup by someone who like knows they have to mix this mix with that thing. And there's your thing at the end.
1: (laughs) I (laughs) I love that metaphor. (laughs) So like I said, I had this misperception that university presses mainly published academic books and journals. Am I totally off base? with that? Or are university presses changing and
2: doing more fiction, you know, for the wider audience? Yeah, you're not wrong. I think what university presses in general are known for their scholarly work because we're associated with universities. This is where a lot of the scholarship comes out of. But for a long time, presses have also been doing the more creative side of things because there are the big publishers that take up a lot of the airspace, you don't hear as much about the trade titles that are coming out from universities, but they're there and they often kind of serve a more local audience, maybe regional memoirs or story collections. But yeah, we're not the only one who does trade things. And I think as we've had success and as universities are looking to expand the models and, and how presses can, you know, keep making money and things like that. I think other presses are getting into the trade areas a little more than they had been before.
1: For So for somebody who's not familiar with some of the lingo, trade publications means what?
2: Oh, yes. Um, trade is like the stuff that you're going to see at the bookstore. It's the novels, it's the creative nonfiction, the memoirs that you're going to pick up, and um, it's written for an audience of people who want to read for entertainment, whereas the scholarly titles are uh, books that are used in university classrooms, or they're used by other scholars to get out new ideas or contribute more to the conversation. It's creating new knowledge that's being put out there, but it's not necessarily written for a lay audience because there's lots of footnotes and citations and kind of in the weeds things that, you know, most people don't necessarily care to read about.
0: But, you know, I imagine somebody, they, they've written a book, they're very excited, you know, they're like, I've got this manuscript and, and they, they want to get it out there, right? So I would imagine that, I guess, a lot of people, they think, oh, I want to publish at one of the big publishers. But if they realize that, oh, maybe a regional, you know, a university press might be a better fit. It's not just the regional, you know, the fact that it's smaller and, and more, as you said, boutique, but they also have to be careful or consider what the press actually publishes. Because my guess is if somebody sent you a manuscript for a I don't know, like a, a troop of vampire bandicoots or something, you you know, that's not really something that West Virginia university press is going to publish. I mean, is that accurate? That's at least the way I'm understanding. There's a certain select genres that, that you all are generally going to tend to publish.
2: Yes. Okay. And also we have a book about a Bigfoot PI coming out.
0: So. Oh, okay. So I'm totally (laughs) wrong (laughs) then.
2: (laughs) But yes, in general, there are areas where we focus on for our fiction and our creative nonfiction. In creative nonfiction, we have a series about place. So it could be in Appalachia, but a lot of it's not. One of the books is about Wisconsin. Another is about Kentucky. And another is kind of about vaudeville in New York. So it's more of a conceptual idea of place than a specific place. So in that way you know we are definitely more broad than the region some you know one of our big fiction books recently was Ghosts of New York which is set in New York City so it's not all regional for us but there are definitely things that like we don't publish historical fiction and you know there are certain kind of subject areas in terms of scholarly work that we kind of stick with into
0: so writers have to be cognizant of that. It's a waste of their time and it's a waste of your all's time for them to send you manuscripts that isn't in your, in your wheelhouse of what you do.
2: Yes, for sure. We ask you know, everyone to like familiar yourselves with our lists. So, you know what we publish, but it's not always the case. Right. Like the Bigfoot
1: PI, which I definitely want to hear about a little bit later.
2: (laughs) I I can't wait to tell you about it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But WVU Press has gotten a lot of great press. I should come up with another word besides press, accolades, because you have published a National Book Award finalist, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Deesha Filia. And so that is a big deal. Uh, Is it unusual for a university press to have such a title and an important honor?
2: It is a very big deal. In addition to being a finalist for the National Book Award, she also won the Penn Faulkner Award and the Story Prize and the LA Times Book Prize for First Fiction. So that's four major awards for one book. And it's basically unheard of, especially in general in books. For books, it's hard to win that many prizes, but especially for a university press book coming out of a press our size. So it's been huge for us.
1: And it's really gotten your name out there. We've had several guests on our podcast that were authors from university presses, and some of them have been my favorite. I mentioned that earlier, but there was Annette Sanu-Clapsaddle, who's the first published novelist from the Eastern Territory of Cherokees. And she had a, a Book of Fiction published by University of Kentucky Press. And then Suzanne Roberts and Erin Flanagan. And Erin Flanagan, she just won an Edgar Award. She was published by University of Nebraska Press. And we, on our podcast, just interviewed Nima Avashia, one of your authors, about her dynamite collection of essays about growing up Indian and queer in Appalachia. And all of these made me think about something that Desha Pillaw said in an interview recently on the BBC that she thinks university presses and independent presses are more likely to take chances
2: and be bolder. And I'm just wondering if you think that's true. It's definitely true, at least for us. And I think this is another way that we're different from the larger presses is that they need to have titles that they're sure are going to make money. And we want to have titles that are going to make money, but success for us in terms of numbers, is way different. You know, if the number of books that we need to sell to say this was a great book for us is far, far lower than one of the big five presses is going to say in terms of what success looks like for them. So I think in that way, we can take chances because we also need to be publishing things that are different because the market is already flooded with a lot of the same type of thing. And one of the things that makes publishing interesting is different voices and bringing those different stories out. And that's what I'm looking for, for things that are coming into the press is new ideas and new stories. And of course it has to be well-written and has to pass quality tests and the readers and whatnot. But I think that we can take those risks because we're also thinking about something more besides the bottom line for us. It's, you know, social justice issues too. And how can we support broader communities in Appalachia, in West Virginia, we partner with bookstores a lot, so it's a larger community of writers and how they're connected. Um, and so, people like Nima and Disha have been like really wonderful in terms of creating not only audience but also community around that audience and the way that they connect with other authors and within our press and without um, and support other writers. That's one of the, the big things that we hope to accomplish too, is just like this larger sense of community around the writing world.
0: When a university press, in your all's case, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, it's won so many awards, as you mentioned, you know, because your position is your marketing manager and acquisitions editor. So, you know, when a book like that blows up, I guess, How does that change your normal marketing routine because something this big does happen and and maybe, you know, you're not used to that, you know, the, the press isn't used to that. So what, what is, has that looked like for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a scramble because like you said, we're not used to that. Ohio State University Press also had a National Book Award finalist in nonfiction the same year that we did. So I think they were having some of the same struggles of like keeping the book in print. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The original version of Disha's book had flaps on the inside, like French flaps. But after she won all those awards, we just needed to be able to have something that could keep being printed more quickly, especially then with all of the supply chain issues that we've been dealing with since the beginning of COVID. But yeah, we had to think about like, how do we get a sticker on the front or like a badge on the front that says it was an MBA finalist? Like, how do we have enough copies to get into bookstores? How can we prioritize getting them into the mom and pop, the local independent bookstores above maybe Amazon or something like that? But also how do we keep them in stock at Amazon? Because that's where people around the country are trying to buy them from. So there is some difficulty around that. As far as publicity, we work with Vesto PR, our friend Jeremy Wang in there. He does some publicity for us for some of our larger trade books. Um, and so he was definitely working on this project too, and helping to manage all of that. But since then, we get way more submissions and we're able to use Deisha's book, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies and books like Nima's book or Jim Lewis's The Ghost of New York. Those books can kind of work toward our larger marketing goal by like, if you like this book, here's other books you might like mm. type of thing. Thinking of them as cohorts and like this community and larger idea and not just these individual books. We've done a lot of work with bookstores up in Pittsburgh to kind of support them and market with them. And when we do events in Pittsburgh, it gets picked up by those Pittsburgh papers and then it gets picked up by larger outlets and things like that too. So it's kind of had a, a cascade effect in how we do things and how we can promote things in the future and pair things up and think about larger goals or
0: larger Audiences. What does it look like for you as an acquisitions editor? Can you kind of give us an idea of what the process of acquiring a book entails? Yeah. You know,
2: one of the ways is I will get an email from an agent or directly from the author that says, here's a little bit about my book, here's a couple chapters, or here's the whole thing. And I'll say, great, I'll take a look at it and let you know if it's a good fit. And then I get to read sometimes you read a few pages and you know it's not right sometimes you want to read more and then it it becomes a project that we want to pursue there are other ways of acquiring books as well we can kind of commission books say like hey we like your writing have you ever thought about doing a book on this topic we would love for you to do a book on this topic will you work with us that type of thing and then it's like up to them to write the book, but we can work with them about conceptualizing it and things like that. Sometimes it's at conferences, we'll see like a a paper or presentation about a certain topic. We're like, oh, that would be great for us. Are you going to write a book about that? We'd like to work with you, that type of thing. And so after we choose the book and we can have a contract with them and it has to go through peer review and get approval by our board. It takes a while. This is another difference from the time the manuscript is like, finished and has gone through all of our processes, then it takes a year until it comes out into the world. But all the stuff leading up to having the final manuscript can also take several months or longer depending on the kind of revisions that are needed or things like that.
1: Is that because you just have a smaller staff or is that because they have to be peer-reviewed?
2: The peer review does take time. It's at least two to three months in that process if everything goes smoothly the first round. But pretty much all university presses are dealing with that same kind of time frame. Right now, especially, it takes several months to have a book printed. So, you know, we have to have things done way ahead of time. It goes through copy editing, proofreading, all the design in the background for getting the pages laid out and everything. Some of that's happening concurrently, but there are kind of steps in the process that have to be completed one after another before we can, you know, even get to the design stage. So yeah, I am not quite sure how the big presses can do it so quickly. I guess they have staff that can copy it or proofread or whatever, do all of that stuff faster. And they work with larger printers that you know, can put things out a lot faster.
0: With being an acquisitions editor, I imagine a lot when we're having conversations with people and I imagine you like having your, the crown on your head and wielding a, you know, a saber and being like, this will get published and this will not get published. I mean, do you have conversations with your colleagues or is that up to you? Cause that feels like it would be like maybe a lot of pressure.
2: I do have a a lot of leeway in that my Derek trusts me and my taste, which I'm a little bit worried about sometimes. Bigfoot PI. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I always have conversations with mainly at this point, it would be Derek about how, how does this fit into our larger list? You know, where is this author located? Do we have bookstores in that area that we could work with? You know, what would the timing of this be? Does it Is it hitting on these certain things that we're kind of looking for or things like that? So, yes, it is not only me, but I do have, I guess, a ridiculous amount of power. (laughs) If you think about it like that, you know, book people kind of think of it differently than most people in the world. Like my family is like, I don't really understand what you do. (laughs) Um, Most people don't think of it as a very powerful position.
1: (laughs) Well, we've talked about this a little bit, but what specific challenges do you think that a university press like WVU Press has with getting their books in the hands of readers that your big publishing houses
2: don't have? You know, besides money. Although that maybe covers a lot. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. The money covers like the marketing and advertising opportunities. Sometimes it's kind of a pay to play. Like if you advertise in this media outlet they're more likely to review your book later on or things like that just having those contacts with reviewers at places like the new york times or those kind of more personal relationships that can move things a lot and that's stuff that we don't often have but even placement in bookstores can be really challenging because you know there's a lot of other independent presses too but there's a lot of books coming out from the big five publishers and all the other big publishers And those books kind of get front placement, especially when they're selling well. So just finding space on the shelf or space where your cover can be seen is part of the difficulty there too.
1: You're talking about the placement. Is that something that happens with independent bookstores? Or is that more of like your Barnes and Noble and Books A Million, like your larger book retailers, just out of curiosity?
2: Uh, That's Both, I think like some independent bookstores will have like a wall that, you know, highlight other indie presses and university presses. And when they do that, like that's really great because there's, you know, a specific place where you can look for these and they're more likely to be covered out there versus just shelved in between all of these other paperback books where there's a spine sticking out. And if we could get something on like the front table or in the front window, like that is huge for us. And so I think independent bookstores are more likely, especially if you have relationships with them, to kind of support your books more like that. And, you know, the Barnes and Nobles, who knows what they're doing? Like, <laughs> we don't have much influence over that.
0: <laughs> Before we in this discussion that we've been having about publishing, recently published or new and upcoming books. So tell us about this Bigfoot book that's <laughs> coming out because... Amy and I both want to know.
2: (laughs) Yes. So it is coming out in August. Um, It is available for pre-order now. It is called Foot, a mystery novel. And it is by Tom Breedhoft. So it is a book about a Bigfoot PI who lives in West Virginia. (laughs) And so he is living incognito in town, working as a PI. And part of his job is to safeguard the community of Bigfoot who are living in the hills outside of Morgantown, have been there for centuries undetected by most of the humans around them. And so he is solving murders and also making sure his Bigfoot people are safe and also not the perpetrators of a murder. And they're also dealing with things that humans deal with, like the opioid epidemic and just what life is like for humans, except on on Bigfoot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me the author again, because I'm adding this to my TBR. (laughs) Tom Breedhoft yeah
2: and this came in April 2020 so like fresh into the pandemic it was like the first nice day in April and I was sitting out in my yard on a Friday and I started reading this this is kind of ridiculous but also incredible and I love it so much because like I love mystery novels and PIs and I love cryptids and there's a big culture of around cryptids in West Virginia, especially like Mothman and West Virginia has several other of their own like specific cryptids. This is super fun. It's very local, but also everyone loves Bigfoot. Like when I talk about it, (laughs) there's always this kind of like laughter, but also like, yeah, I'm interested because this sounds so bizarre, but it's also so delightful.
1: (laughs) I love books like that. They're just like a little bit off kilter. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> yeah. I love that yeah, surprising. Well,
2: there... <laughs> so are there are there any other books that you want to tell us about? Right now it just came out the beginning of April is Lioness by Mark Powell. Um, and it's climate fiction. It's kind of a nonlinear storytelling about a bombing at a water bottling plant. And this reporter who's looking into it but it turns out that his estranged wife was also likely involved in it so it's kind of dealing with different things around when is violence justified climate issues activism um, but also a human story a personal story about this couple and their son who passed away so it's kind of grappling with a lot of things at one time and it was super compelling to me and I was reading another like climate fiction novel like I got 100 pages and like I would rather reread Lioness than continue this one so so that one just came out and then we have a nonfiction book kind of memoir coming out in October called Curing Season and it's by Christine Langley Mahler who is also the publisher and director at Split Lip Press and Curing Season is, looks at kind of place and memory and belonging She's trying to figure out this place that she grew up in or spent a few years in as an adolescent in North Carolina where she really wanted to belong and has always wanted to belong but didn't fit in And the painfulness of that or exploring those memories and what it means now and why it means so much and creating her own history and her own place in that space. And that one's part of the In Place series that I mentioned earlier, yeah.
1: Those are some great titles. I've I've written them down. I think this is a good place for us to stop. We're going to take a quick break and then when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Carrie and with Sarah Monroe and we're going to talk about what we're reading. So Carrie, I am getting ready to leave on a trip. And I have a long, long list of books that I am I'm trying to decide between to take. But you don't have all that stress of figuring out what to take on a trip. So what are you reading?
0: I do not, but I've had a lot of freelance work lately and I'm almost done. I can like see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so next week, my plan is to read a lot more. But I want to talk about a book right now that I actually heard about this book, you know, even though we do this and and it goes into podcast form, I really don't listen to a lot of podcasts only because I spend most of my time listening to books. I was listening to the podcast Strong Sense of Place, Melissa and David, Melissa, Melissa Alyssa was a guest on our show, but David talked about a book called City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. He mentioned like magic and gins and set in Egypt. And I was like, ooh, that that sounds good. So I got the book uh, based on his recommendation and I really enjoyed it. It's a pretty big book. It's like 500 pages, which normally I don't want to read a book that thick, but this was a quick read. So the story begins with Nari, a young woman in Egypt who has some unusual powers, but she's mostly just a con woman. She unintentionally summons a djinn warrior named Dara, and they begin a journey to the city of Brass. So this is kind of like a safe city for her. She realizes through Dara that she has these powers. And so they escape to the city of Brass because they start being chased, essentially, by these scary demons once they arrive in the City of Brass, Nari realizes some things about her background that help explain some of these unusual magic-like abilities. And she begins a friendship with the prince of the city, Ali, whose father is keeping her more or less imprisoned. So, you know, this 500-page book, it's a little bit complicated. It's a lot for me to try to explain in just a minute or two. So I will say there are some jealousies between Dara and Ali over Nari. There's some Family backstabbing. There's some epic battles, and there's some magic. And if this sounds like things you'd like, then I suggest you check out *City of Brass* by S. A. Chakraborty. So, would you say it's pretty heavy fantasy? Mm, uh, well, what do you mean, like all new language yes. and th- stuff? Yes. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, you know it's how it's not I am Tolkien. With that. Yeah, no, it's okay. not Tolkien. So, no, you don't have to learn. Well, no, actually, let me backtrack that a little bit. (laughs) I should say, this is the beginning of a a series. And at the beginning of the book, they do talk about that there's these different tribes of jinn, And so that- Which are genies. Yes. Which are just what we call genies. Genies, Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's different tribes of jinn. So the book does talk about those a little bit. And sometimes I'd be like, Okay. What powers do these have? And, but it, it wasn't like I was having to learn a new language, but it is sort of high fantasy in the sense that there's these different bands, you know, kind of like when you read Tolkien and you're like, there's the orcs and there's the hobbits, except it's, it's all different tribes of jinns, and you have to sort of keep track of, okay, what are their abilities? No, okay. no dictionary at the back.
1: <laughs> no glossary
0: dictionary. No glossary. Okay, well, okay good. You okay, should very be okay. <laughs> Sarah, what have you
2: been reading? Well, your book sounds like something that'd be right up my alley recently. I've been really into epic books and sci-fi and fantasy. I think it might have something to do with an escapism desire. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just want to be lost in a world that is not this one. And you can keep me in for as many pages, the more the better. <laughs> and so I finally read Octavia Butler's Kindred, which I really loved it is a shorter book it's only like 250 pages um but the protagonist is taken back in time like it's set in the 70s and also the early 1800s and there's two characters who are linked and she is pulled back into the 1800s where she would be a slave um to save this white man who would be her master it's playing with time and complications Around, you know, how easy it is to fall into these roles when you're living in the 19th century and um, what it means to be connected and things like that. So, big ideas in a shortish novel. And then also, I read N.K. Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy. Oh, um, yeah. yes. That was wonderful. Um, and so then I kind of started dipping into some other sci fi. I'm looking forward to reading Moon Witch Spider King. It's the second in Marlon James's Dark Star trilogy. Last summer, I read Black Leopard, Red Wolf. It's it's like a a huge, massive, and it's not necessarily new languages that you're having to learn, but it's just people aren't what they seem. Like, they they can shift shape sometimes, or they're clouds, or like... It's a different kind of world that you have to, it took me like 150 pages to let myself kind of be drawn into it. And then I was like, I will stay here forever, please.
0: (laughs) Um, Amy would would give up about about page 10. She'd be like, (laughs) what's going on here? (laughs) I did have to reread
2: the first chunk a couple times before I'm like, okay, I think I have enough of a grasp to keep going. And then it kind of falls into place. A little better. but Maybe you know, my but right.
1: maybe my patience level just isn't, isn't <laughs> yeah. there. I don't know. <laughs> I'm curious about how much time you have to read things that you just want to read. You're the acquisitions editor and you have so many books that you have to read for work.
2: Yeah, I'm not always successful, but I try to contain my work within certain hours so that the evening is my time to read. And, you know, if I'm really enjoying a book, I make more time. I don't have children, and you might be able to hear my chickens in the background. Mostly I just have chickens (laughs) and dogs. (laughs) So... I do get a decent amount of time to read if I if I want to read, if I'm like okay with some of my submissions piling up for a while in my <laughs> inbox. I just started The Kill by Richard House, which is a four book, thousand page wow. <laughs> oh. novel that th- there's four books within. So each one is 250 pages. So if you think of it that way, it's not as bad. It was a man booker finalist from like 2013, but it's a thriller And I guess each book is kind of different. It's about like the Middle East after Americans kind of pulled out more and all the contractors are there doing things and moving money and building things and having lots of conspiracies and things like that. So that is like, okay, I'm ready for a thriller. Like, I'm just going to
0: sit here and read this instead
2: of watching TV tonight. So, you know,
0: (laughs) well, Amy, You're getting ready to go out of town. So have you read books in preparation for this trip? Because you haven't mentioned it. No, but I have some books that
1: I think I'm going to load onto my e-reader. But yes, I have a couple of books in mind that I'm going to read that are set in, in Italy. But not today. The book I'm going to talk about today is a book that I'm listening to. I'm not quite done with it. I'm almost done with it. It's called The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. And this is John Green's first collection of essays. Most people know him from his young adult novels. And the most well known is probably The Fault in Our Stars. And I wasn't initially interested in reading this book. And it's for an embarrassing reason I didn't have any idea what the word Anthropocene meant. And as a person who loves words, that really shouldn't have set me off of this book, but I'm ashamed to say that it did. What finally convinced me to read it is that someone told me it was an amazing audiobook, and I'm always looking for amazing audiobooks. And so I decided to give it a try, and they were absolutely right. So if, like me, you were somewhat intimidated by the word Anthropocene, you don't have to tell anybody because I'm going to tell you what it means. (laughs) Anthropocene (laughs) refers to the geologic time when humans impact on the earth really started to have a dominant influence on climate and the environment. It's still being debated when it actually started, but most geologists say that it started somewhere between the Industrial Revolution and the 1950s. Now, honestly, this doesn't have a lot to do with the book except to say that John Green contemplates many things about modern life and then at the end gives it a rating. So in recent years, everyone wants to rate everything. We do Goodreader reviews, we do Yelp reviews, and this book is that idea, but in a much more thoughtful form. He ponders and reviews such things as teddy bears, Diet Dr. Pepper, Super Mario Kart, the internet, and sunsets. But what he does in these essays to me, is really remarkable writing. He takes several different subjects, and maybe they're related and maybe they're not, and he sort of weaves them together. For instance, the essay that I just finished listening to was about viral meningitis, which he contracted at some point in the last 10 years. But the essay isn't just about viral meningitis. It's about how amazing and weird a virus is, the essence of pain, what constitutes living, how we have no words to express certain things, and how we can be several different people at different times of our life and the limits of empathy. He talks about a lot of deep, petty subjects, but there are a lot of really funny moments in these essays as well. And Carrie, I think this would be a great collection for your students to teach essay writing. They could pick a thing that means something in their life, whether it be something they love or something they hate. It could be like their phone or their favorite food and look at it from the microcosm of the straightforward and then from sort of a macro view. So like take, I'm thinking of something that my daughter used to really like, hot Cheetos. Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) think about what effect does their bag of hot Cheetos have on the broader level? Maybe that bag of hot Cheetos was the way they made a friend in class by sharing and then how... Has that friendship or sharing affected them or the world around them? How do they manufacture hot Cheetos? And are there social and environmental considerations? And what, by God, do they use to color those things? (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) hot Cheetos aren't always just hot Cheetos. You get the idea. And then rate that thing by balancing those views. So John Green narrates this book himself, and it's wonderful, and I am giving... The Anthropocene reviewed a rating of five stars. Wow.
0: Wow. I'm <laughs> impressed.
1: How
2: did, yeah. How did Diet Dr. Pepper do? <laughs> That's <like> my favorite. <laughs> um, I'm, so
1: I'm trying to remember what he rated it but he went into like the history of why diet dr pepper is different from like the other colas because the other colas do have sort of a flavor that's somewhat natural but diet dr pepper's not like that like it's completely it's completely chemical and he likes that <laughs> Even if He shouldn't. Even he so i think he actually
0: rated it pretty high like maybe four stars but, yeah it's a fun book it sounds like a good blend of of light and and heavy yes all together yes. all together yes. Well, these have been great book suggestions. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, Sarah's going to answer her questions. We are back with Sarah Monroe from West Virginia University Press. Sarah, question number Hi. one. Are you ready for it? Okay. All right. (laughs) So we understand you're a dinosaur enthusiast. Which dinosaur do you find most interesting and why is it your chicken? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I got into
2: dinosaurs, I think, because I really liked dragons, Um, Mm. you know, and people found dinosaurs, skeletons, and thought that they... We're made up stories about dragons or whatever. And Triceratops is my favorite dinosaur because of the land before time and Sarah, and it has my name in it basically uh. spelled differently. So, yeah. But now I have these chickens. And it's super, it's actually super creepy because they are like little tiny raptors, like the Jurassic Park <laughs> raptors are like the little compies that just like run around. And then they look at you from the side with their one eye and you're like, you can pick my eyes. That <laughs> like, it's just, they, they have very small heads, very small brains, but I think that they're thinking a lot more than we realize. And I don't trust them. And <laughs> they're a lot of fun, but they are a little bit creepy. <laughs> yeah.
0: We were driving to Tennessee this past weekend, and there was a bird. I don't know if it was an egret that was flying. I don't know what bird it was. This bird flying, like, right along the car, and... I mean, there are some birds that still, they so look like they just stepped out of Jurassic Park, (laughs) you know, when they're flying. It's both wild, but it's also pretty strange. So is this dinosaur thing, like, was this a love that developed when you were a kid and it's just stayed strong all these years? No,
2: I mean, like, I liked dinosaurs when I was a kid. And, you know, Jurassic Park was terrifying when I saw it in the theater. I couldn't even finish my candy bar. (laughs) <laughs> um, which I mean for me this is a lot <laughs> um but then it actually developed well I was in college and I was reading is it called Aragon there's this yeah oh, yeah yeah, yeah. There was like my dip back into fantasy and I really loved that book and then I started thinking about dinosaurs because of that and then I got really into dinosaurs and it's actually hmm. how I met my husband. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we had a dinosaur wedding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my God. Okay. I think I, we need to scrap the other two questions. Right, we were right, you, right, right. And we just have to ask, how did you meet your husband that way? And what is involved with a
2: dinosaur wedding? <laughs> so we met online actually through OK Cupid in the earlier days before, before they all turned to be absolutely terrible things, those dating apps. But I had my my screen name or whatever was Dino Sarah. And the question that I had people answer if they were going to email me was like, what's your favorite dinosaur and why? And it's really easy to weed people out if A, they don't answer the question and B, they like, don't have a good dinosaur or a good reason to (laughs) like a dinosaur. (laughs) Uh, But my husband also really likes dinosaurs. So we immediately got along over that. And our first, well, technically, I guess our second date, because I dumped him in between the first and the second (laughs) date, was to the Natural History Museum. The Academy of Natural Sciences there in in Philly. And there's an area where you can dig for dinosaur bones and it's meant for children, but you know, we are two people in our twenties who are like digging for dinosaur bones there. And we identified a T-Rex tooth that was fairly loose But the tools that they give you, because they're meant for children, are not sharp enough to actually pry out a (laughs) a, a styrofoam bone. So we came back the next day with a butter knife and a screwdriver. and nonchalantly <laughs> sat there digging out this tooth that we now display in our home <laughs> and because we are both like very law-abiding citizens who you know don't do anything wrong um, <laughs> we were like very freaked out that we were going to get caught and we're
0: like we can't run from the scene they'll know we did something we have to sit here and act casually <laughs> defacing the dinosaur yeah. digging exhibit <laughs> yep <laughs> okay i'm seeing now why the dinosaur wedding happened what what was involved with that i need to know what the like what are they called the table settings look like yeah so
2: the the table settings were you know those plastic dinosaurs you can get from ac Moore or whatever but we like cut a hole in the top and put succulents in them uh-huh so, yeah uh, yeah I have so it's like a little planter office. Yeah, okay. and um my mom made my wedding dress and she embroidered on the bodice a paisley pattern of dinosaurs. It's Oh amazing. my gosh! It's actually really incredible. It's really beautiful. Like in sequins and like little jewels and stuff. And then I walked down the aisle to the theme of Jurassic Park. Oh <laughs> wow. <laughs> we yeah, we had blow up dinosaurs there and dinosaur hats that you could wear. We had like a little photo booth type area with like a, um, a large T-Rex that you could take photos with. The little like boutonier pin things were origami dinosaurs that we folded. So yeah, they, it was just Sprinkled throughout tastefully. <laughs> so,
1: did you have a, like a, a digging area from your
2: very first <laughs> No, we should have. We should have you. all of our guests get down there in the dirt. There's a fire pit, but no digging area. <laughs> wow. That is
0: amazing. That's yeah. amazing. I'm so glad we just said that those other questions are nothing. We need to ask people about their dinosaur (laughs) habits that. So what secret dinosaur things do you have going on?
2: (laughs) Who knows what else everyone has? That's right. (laughs) That's right. Dinosaurs became really popular a few years ago, like for adults too. So there's lots of t-shirts and things with dinosaurs that you can wear. And it's like, oh, it's not just like a niche hobby. You can, you can have all the dinosaurs you want.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it Maybe has been we'll so check. fun chatting with you, learning about not only your extensive dinosaur interests, but also your work with West Virginia University Press. Thanks so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been great chatting with you. And thanks for doing this podcast and you know promoting books and reading and all this fun stuff. You can
1: find WVU Press at their website, www.wvupressonline.com, on Instagram and Twitter at WVU Press, and at Facebook at West Virginia University Press. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.